This week on Miranda Warnings, we welcome Myrna Martinez-Santiago. Welcome, Myrna. Thank you, Dave. It's great to have you. Myrna is the founder of Girls Rule the Law. She's also a member of the law firm of Hurwitz and Fine, and she's a lecturer on eliminating bias and addressing racism in our society. But first, tell us a little bit about Girls Rule the Law and uh, the work that they do. Girls with the Law is a pipeline organization. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. I founded it because, um, you know, as you know, there's very little diversity at the upper layers of the law, and that's uh, including the legal field, the legislature, or the judiciary. So uh, for women who look like me, I think we're about 1% of partners at law firms, for instance. Um, we have very little representation in terms of judges and, and legislators. So I felt it was important to uh, create a pipeline organization to introduce girls to that area, um, you know, to the law. And in order for us to do that, the, our main mission is to conduct that introduction. And we do that through um, law days, through youth conferences, like uh, my background that we did at the New York City Bar. We do that going into the schools, um, holding debate classes, mock trial. We do, we have sister schools where we go into the schools and teach targeted lessons. Like right now, we're doing one for Women's History Month uh, where we're teaching labor and employment law to a group of, of young ladies. So, you know, that sort of thing. That's what we do at Girls Rule. So you introduce uh, uh, middle and high school girls to the law and provide them with an opportunity to interact with uh, mentors in, in the law and the judiciary and uh, the legislature. Uh, if someone were to want to become more involved in your organization, how would, how would they do that? They would go on the website, um, www.girlswithalaw.org, or they could send me an email. I get emails all the time. It's Myrna, M-I-R-N-A, at girlswithalaw.org. Um, and we'd be happy to get involved. We have a whole bunch of women mentors who show up for our events um, to interact with the girls. We have a woman mentor now who's teaching the labor and employment law class. So yeah, we're always looking for people to mentor with us. And what's the locality in which uh, the Girls Rule the Law uh, is providing services? Um, mostly in New York City. So that's where we get our, our mentors from. And um, But we're open to, to anywhere that people want us for Especially now with COVID, everything is virtual. So we've uh, we've been putting on fireside chats um, on we call them leadership lessons for girls and women, and um, and we invite women, you know, prominent women. Last uh, last time we had Cecilia Loving, who's deputy commissioner at the FDNY. Um, we've had judges. We have um, legislators. We had Assemblywoman, uh, New York State Assemblywoman Catalina Cruz, who was a speaker. And um, we, we're getting a huge following from across the country. We are, you know, people from Florida and California are hearing about us. So now with, um, you know, that was the one, I guess, uh, silver lining about COVID is that it, it did allow us to expand our reach beyond New York City. Right. Great. Well, it's wonderful work. It's wonderful work, Myrna. And uh, thank you for sharing that with us. You have also shared quite a bit about your studies uh, and lecturing on uh, how, in some ways, our society has codified racism and biases into our laws and into our structures. Tell us a little bit about that and, and why it's so dangerous. 
Well, one of the things that I, I talk about in my interruption of bias um, courses, and, and also I've now rolled out an anti-racism course that I did for the New York State Bar Association um, in February for Black History Month. And I do talk about systemic racism in the United States. And the reason I do that is because people tend to look at today and they say, well, you know, there's no disparate impact. Um, there's no disparate treatment anymore. You know, people can't be told to sit in the back of the bus or that they can't apply for a job or that they can't move into certain neighborhoods without realizing that there is disparate impact because of the disparate treatment that we had for so long, where we did have segregation and redlining. We had institutional racism in the form of slavery. So I try to break it down for people. Um, in all of my presentations, I try to, you know, make it like a third. So the first part is just sort of that background going through the redlining laws, going through the Black laws that were instituted after, um, you know, the emancipation of, of enslaved people and bringing them up to today where a lot of that stuff, you know, that was designed on purpose to treat people of color as second-class citizens when it's never undesigned. So where you had the redlining, where you had the segregation, people, you know, I think they said something like 62% of neighborhoods in the United States are still segregated. Um, so it was just never undone. Right. And, and I think we've seen that quite a bit in uh, voter suppression laws that uh, uh, provide for voter suppression mm -hmm. and uh, that, you know, on their face may seem to be um, equal, uh, but when you get down to the actual laws, you can see that they're designed uh, yes. and in fact have the in impact of suppressing uh, certain groups of individuals exactly. from voting. And I know that you've spoken about that. Tell us a little bit about how some of the laws that are, you know, come under the guise of, you know, voter fraud protection, for example, um, may uh, in fact be uh, specifically providing for voter suppression of certain groups. Um, I think one of the things that, that you have to keep in mind is that when, when people, you look, I keep talking about that disparate impact versus just disparate treatment, right? So um, there are certain laws that are race neutral, they're gender neutral, they're, they're neutral on their face, but they do have that disproportionate impact, like you're saying, disparate impact. So when you look at these laws and people say, well, why wouldn't you want to have everyone provide ID when they're voting? Um, and there, the, some of the laws are specifically saying state issued ID. When you go to New York, for instance, you know, which is where I sit, and you go to DMV to get a state-issued ID, you have to provide certain documents. It's changed slightly now because you know they are allowing people who are undocumented in America to provide other documents from other countries to get um, you know license. But when you look normally at state-issued IDs, you have to provide documents that, like a passport or you know, a social security card, not just a number. So some those things require money. If you are underprivileged, you are, um, you, know, you are poor, you are low income, you're not going to have $65 to get a passport, right? You're using that money for something else. You're not going to get $40 to get a social security card. You, you probably go on a social security website and get a number, but you're not going to pay the $40 to get a physical card. So, and then if you, if you need both of them, which we, you do in New York, um, that's over $100, which a lot of low-income people do not have. And this is multiplied across the country. So when you're talking about, you know, oh, it's easy to get an ID. No, it's not for certain people. Right. And, and of course, 
you know, if you have a you have a driver's license, that would constitute an, an ID. It often is is used as your main ID. But for people that are in the city, uh, regardless of of race or ethnicity, oftentimes they they have no need for a driver's license because they're not going to have a car. Uh, and when you look at certainly at those groups of people, um, they're you know more likely to be poor, more likely to be of of you know uh, a non-white race, um, and so. When you have those restrictions, obviously, even though it's not designed specifically for a particular uh, uh, group of per- of person, it has the same uh, effect. Yeah, it has that impact. And you know, when you're talking specifically about driver's license, that's that's actually what I was talking about. You know, in terms of the state issued ID, if, you know, if you don't have a driver's license, you can get a state issued ID, but it's the same requirements to get both. Whether you're going to get the non-driver's ID or or the driver's license, you actually need documentation saying proving who you are, and that documentation requires money. And there's been there's other areas uh, besides voting that uh, you've talked about uh, as uh, you know somehow uh, uh, codifying or uh, enhancing the systematic racism, for example, in education. Uh, and I know that's obviously something that's very important to you. Uh, mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit of, about how we've had some systematic uh, racism in our education. Funding is, is the obvious one, right? Um, I'll, and I'll come back to funding, but one of it is also just the location of a lot of these schools. Um, one of the things that I do when I do my training is I take pictures so I'll show pictures of the schools within the inner cities that are all concrete. There's no place, no green spaces for these, these kids to learn. It's loud. You have police lined up outside just waiting for something to happen to go in and arrest or detain these kids. And then you go into the suburbs or even my neighborhood, which is largely agricultural. It's not like a rich suburb like in Westchester. I'm up in Putnam County. It's agricultural. Lots of cows. And you look at those schools and those schools are great, right? They have lots of green spaces. Everything is brand new. And why is that? Part of it is because of the funding. Um, and people always argue with me. They'll say, well, you know, there's there are laws against that. You know, there are laws that say that the New York State, uh, you know, the state itself has to provide the same funding for the schools in the Bronx as they do in your neighborhood. So what are you talking about? There are laws that say that the federal government has to provide the same amount of funding. Well, first of all, the federal government provides like 9% of the funding for the schools. And that goes to like after school programs, pre-care, that sort of thing. So that's kind of out of out of the, the, the picture. The, the state provides something like 20 something, 25, 26% of the funding. And the state actually does provide a little bit more for those schools that are traditionally underfunded. But the huge balance of that, you know, something like 60% of the funding depends on your neighborhood. So in my neighborhood, which I've said is largely agricultural, half, fully half of our, our property taxes go towards funding the public schools, right? So we, we are providing a huge amount of our funds to the public schools to make sure that it is at that level, that it has a, um, state-of-the-art equipment and everything else. When you go into the city, the people providing, one, there's, there's not a lot of people living in houses, right? So you don't have those property taxes in the city. But secondly, the, the taxes that people do pay are split in so many different ways. They have to pay the municipality for water, right? 
we have a well here. That money is not going to that. They have to pay for the fire department, for instance. We have a volunteer fire department up the road. We don't, money doesn't go into that. They, they have to pay for the NYPD. We have a sheriff's department that relies a lot on the state troopers for backup. So it's like, when, depending on where you live, you can actually put more money into the education of your kids, which you know is better for their future. Whereas if you live in the city, you just don't have that option. Because there's so many other uh, things that need to exactly. be paid for uh, when you're when you're in a city. Now, uh, you said you live in Putnam, but you, you're uh, obviously very active in New York City. And I know there's been uh, recently a great discussion regarding the merit-based uh, system because there's some uh, special schools in New York City that uh, individuals could go to if they scored a certain, you know, grade on a test, et cetera. And there's been some controversy over that because even though it's appeared to be fair because everybody gets to take the test and everybody who gets a certain score is able to have an opportunity to get to those schools, in reality, uh, the schools were uh, highly, uh, highly uh, moved towards individuals that were white and not mm -hmm. minorities. And so tell us a little bit about your thoughts on, on the merit-based uh, programs that are now apparently over the last year are being uh, perhaps looked at and changed. Uh, you know, I truly believe that every child should have access to an equal education. If you're putting kids into a merit-based school where the, the smarter kids get to go here and, and, you know, the kids that are less worthy go over there, then you are already perpetuating a system where the, those kids who are, are not in these merit-based schools are going to continue to fail, right, and, and not do well. But one of the things that, that about the kids that don't excel, and I'll give you an example from my Girls Rule the Law work, is that I meet, I do um, debate virtually with the school in the South Bronx every week, and, and it's after school, isn't it? you know, it's based after school, so it's 3.30 to, um, to 4.30. And the kids that are on the debate who are volunteering for the debate they're, they're like interrupting half the time to say, oh, I have to go feed my little sister. Or you can hear, you know, people in the background because they're in one room. They don't have space to, to actually go somewhere and, and be able to study. I mean, these kids are dealing with a lot. And to say, well, the kids who can score better on tests should get a better education because they're more interested, it's, it's just not fair. I think we need to provide an equal education to all kids so that they can all try to excel and be in, you know, succeed. Right. And, and certainly the, the issues that you're, you're addressing now, I think, are exacerbated during this time of COVID and quarantine, because at least when you go to school, when you go to the school, all the kids in the classroom will be in the same place, uh, have the same, the benefit of the same school. If you're working from your home or going to school from your home, then everybody has the advantages and disadvantages of whatever their home life is. And sometimes for those that are disadvantaged, the opportunity to be in a school where it's that has some structure is is a, a an advantage that enables students that otherwise wouldn't be able to 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 thrive exactly and you also have the the parents who because they're working i was a latchkey kid 
Um, you know, my dad was a mechanic. He worked from seven in the morning till 730 at night. My mother had two or three jobs because, you know, people always complain about the fact that immigrants send money back. My mother had two jobs so that she could provide for what we needed here and also send money back. Right. Because if though if she didn't send money back, those people back home would starve um, in Honduras. So, um when you have latchkey kids, for instance, we had to be self-motivated. You know, thankfully, I had older siblings, and they would poke me and say, do your homework or do this or do that. A lot of the kids who are latchkey kids, because they are living in poverty and their parents are working so much, they're not self-motivated. You know, that's another example from my debate classes where the teachers have to call the kids and say, you know, you signed up for debate. Can you please get on the call? Because they don't have parents to say, hey, don't you have something going on, you know, right now? So um, that's another issue as well. So you, you've, you've certainly, I think, highlighted and given some examples of, of the problems that we, we see. Uh, what, can we, what can we be doing and what should we be doing to try to alleviate some of these inherent problems? Um, you know, it's easier said than done, but one of the things that I keep talking about is the fact that we really do have to undesign this deliberate design of segregation in the schools and, and the neighborhoods, right? So, you know, for the Bar Association, we need to be speaking out constantly. Like, for instance, when the, um, when the executive order was issued in the last administration, um, that on its face, again, was neutral, right? It, it said um, there should be no um, training for federal employees that denigrated groups of people. And on its face, you're like, oh, that's great. You know, that means that, you know, people are going to, everybody's going to be treated equal. But when you looked at it, it was, no, it wasn't about any denigration of groups of people. It was about denigration of whites, Right. They they didn't want to talk about the history of this country, of the systemic racism and that sort of thing. So for us in the Bar Association, we really need to be constantly speaking out about things because, you know, like they say, people who, who are not steeped in history, who don't you know look at their history are doomed to repeat them. And you see that come up lots and lots of times with the laws, with with the voter suppression, with the zoning laws for the suburbs and that sort of thing. So we just can't stay quiet. We have to keep talking. Yeah, certainly I agree. And, you know, uh, words matter. And uh, the Bar Association certainly has uh, a, a voice uh, that can bring together, you know, attorneys from throughout New York State, mm -hmm. and they can shine a light on these injustices. And, and we, we can and we, we do propose, you know, legislative changes that can address it. And, and I agree that uh, talking about these issues, talking about the problem is, 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 a, is a first step. It's not the end, mm -mm. but it's the beginning of, of moving forward. And you certainly, you've talked about other things that I think are you know, certainly very interesting. You talk about something called implicit versus explicit biases. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's something that I think is only in recent years been discussed. I mean, we know, the kind of overt racism, that's something that we're all familiar with, but there's implicit biases that are possessed by all of us, not necessarily exactly. someone who's, who's bad or even uh, trying to be prejudiced. Um, and there are, so let's talk about some of the implicit biases that all of us have mm -hmm. um, in all races and um, how we can be more, more mindful of them so that they don't affect how we go about our everyday lives. 
Yeah, I do talk a lot about recognizing and interrupting bias, you know. Um, and one of the things that I put in each of my trainings is a list of stereotypes, um, quote unquote, good and quote unquote, bad, right? So, and I think that's what kind of get it. That's what for people, it makes it sink in. When you look at the stereotypes, you know, like the, the angry black woman, or when you call people poor white trash, or, you know, when you say, oh, Asians are smart. Or you look, you see a driver, you're like, it has to be a woman driver. Or run, why do you run like a girl? Um, you know, like when you look at some of these, these stereotypes and uh, language, right? Because words matter. Um, people realize, oh, wow, yeah, I have been socialized in a way that I have bias. And that's the way I start off all of my presentations. Like I always tell people, I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know, there's no difference between you and me except where I'm sitting, right? Or where I'm standing. And then people kind of get taken aback and they're like, well, if I'm learning how to drive, I really don't want my instructor to come in and say, well, there's no difference between you and me except where I'm sitting. I want them to be better. So why aren't you better? And then I have to explain, well, because I've been socialized to have bias as well. You know, I'm Latina, but in Latinx cultures, a lot of us, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I know in my family, there was a lot of anti-Black bias, right? You look at me, I'm walking down the street and you think I'm a Black woman, right? An African-American woman. And my father would be the first to say, no, those Blacks are bad, right? So the American Blacks are bad. Those are the ones that we always see in the news. And there's no difference between us. So that's a bias that I've had to deal with and, and you know, understand and, and get over so that I can also interrupt my own biases and, and, you know, change them. So everybody has bias. We've all been socialized. It comes from the media, from the news, from our families. So I think that's, that's the important way for me that I start off every presentation is to say, you know, you're not here because you're bad. You know, you're not here to be retrained. You're here to recognize what you've learned and to change it so that we can all be better going forward. So now that we can, and all of us, I think, as we, you know, look at our daily routines and how we conduct ourselves, you can, you can say, if you are, have some self-awareness that, yes, perhaps I look at things a different way than, than you might. And, mm -hmm. uh, but then how can we, recognizing that, how can we do better? You just have to be conscious of it. I think change has to be intentional. For me, I, I, I like to interrupt biases with the question, why? And I'm finding that as I'm teaching my son that he's 17, he's asking me why all the time. <laughs> and then, so I'm like, oh my God, I, I do have a lot of biases. But you know, that, that's the question for me. Like if I see, you know, if someone says something um, that's, that could be considered a microaggression, I would say, you know, gently, because I, I don't think it helps if, if you're in somebody's face and you're overly aggressive. But I do ask the question, well, why did you say that? You know, like, you know, why, why did you feel the need to say that to me or to that person, right? Because we also have to be upstanders. If you see it happening to somebody else, we have to interrupt it. Um, so that's my, my question is why. So like I said, you know, being who I am, you know, Miss Diversity and Inclusion Woman, um, and raising my son in a way that I'm, I was hoping he wouldn't have bias, but he's always catching me and stuff. Like I'll say something and then he'll be like, 
why did you say that, mom? And then I'm like, oh, crap, there I go again with my own biases. So yeah, so it, it's about being intentional and recognizing. Um, and if you say something that's considered a microaggression and somebody gently asks you why, you know, not to get defensive and be like, you know, be, be willing to apologize and say, yeah, I'm sorry I said that or explain why and then have the person tell you why they were offended by it or why, you know, it was a microaggression or it was wrong. Well, you know, kids are certainly very good at keeping you humble and uh, making you aware of whatever imperfections you have. Uh, but, you know, the fact that they're aware of these issues and able to articulate them, I think would be considered progress, mm. that at least they're growing up knowing that this is an issue yeah. uh, rather than it being something that's just accepted. Yeah, that's true. So... You know, you're out, you work uh, at a law firm, uh, Hurwitz and Fine. Um, you deal with lawyers. You're on the executive committee of the New York State Bar Association. Uh, what What are some of the, the the biases that you see just in the legal profession? Oh, um, there are at least three. If you know um, that, I always see. I, I do consulting work in the DEI space as well. And a lot of law firms, you know, and you may be, you may remember this day from your um, time as president, but people would always say like in the, in the bar association or in the firm, um, not my particular firm, but in firms, they'll right. say, oh, we've done everything to get people of color, to get BIPOC into the door. Um, why don't we have more people of color? You know, like it's frustrating. Why don't we have more people of color? And I will always say, again, very gently, I say, well, you don't have people of color at your firm because you don't have people of color. <laughs> and they get frustrated because they're like, that's what we're saying. No, that that's actually not. The reason is, right, like I, I think about diversity and inclusion as, as Noah's Ark. If I walk into your firm or your business or your organization and there's no one who looks like me, I'm not thinking, oh, you've done everything you can do to bring people of color into the fold. I'm thinking your firm is actively hostile to diversity. There's a reason that you can't keep people of color. There's a reason that you can't, you know, they're walking in your door and leaving. That's the other thing I hear. Oh, we've we've had people of color, but then they go somewhere else. They go to, to work for government or nonprofit. Yes, because that's where the people of color are. <laughs> Right. right. That, that's where they feel comfortable because they see people who look like them in leadership in positions that that actually effectuate change. So, you know, you're never going to get people of color unless you you're intentional in your hiring. Maybe do some lateral hiring so that you do have people of color in leadership. Um, but that's something that needs to be done. Right. Um, right. The other thing I hear is, well, we we don't have we don't find the caliber of people of color that we want. There's, you know, there's just not BIPOC in in the top 10% at Harvard or Yale. Okay, that's wonderful. But maybe have you stopped to think that you don't need to look at Harvard or Yale? Maybe you can look at other schools. You know, there's nothing wrong with the SUNY school or CUNY or, you know, uh, the, the baby Ivies. There's nothing wrong with those schools. And you have to realize that because of the history of this country with the segregation, with the school funding, you're not probably going to find a lot of BIPOC at the you know, top 10% of Harvard or Yale. So right. it's not that you're, you're you know, doing without or, or you're, you're lowering your standards. You're just expanding them because you right. want a bigger pool of people. And so, you know, to, to come back to something we started with, that's why I think the, the programs that you have with Girls Rule the Law is so important because you might have 
less people going, uh, people of color going to law school because it, they're just not familiar with that being an opportunity to that's available to them. So they don't have a mother or father in their family or an aunt mm-hmm. that's a lawyer already uh, so that they don't think that that's something that uh, a career path for them. Mm-hmm. But certainly your program uh, opens up that door to them. And those that go, those that that are of color and are the first in their family become, you know, really trailblazers, not only for their, for their family, but, uh, but for their race, because they may be, you know, the first person that's, you know, a partner in, in a law firm. But before you're a partner in a law firm, you have to be an associate in that law firm. And before you're an associate, you have to go to law school. And before you're in law school, you have to go to college. So every one of those steps is a challenge for someone who's doing it for the first time uh, in their family. Exactly. And I I know that we've talked about this in in our bar association. Obviously, the New York State Bar Association is committed to diversity, not only in our profession, but, you know, throughout our state. And when we've talked about this and we've said – what can we do to, to, to be better as far as promoting diversity? The answer is, and I think the answer you know, you've provided, is have people of color in leadership so that when somebody who's a lawyer is looking for an organization that they want to be involved in, they'll say, this person might be able to understand what I'm going through rather than it just being... Um, you know, one race. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And and even in, and we're all learning, right? I know when I was, um, when I had, when I went before the nominating committee to be on the executive committee, um, I was put up as the diversity member of the executive committee. And the question, one of the questions I was asked is, well, what can we do better? Um, you know, what would you change? And I said, well, the fact that I need to be, I need to come in as a diversity member of the executive committee, as opposed to someone who's been a member of NISBA since 2008. I've, you know, been uh, the chair of the torts insurance and compensation law section. I've been, you know, the chair of, of the, the subcommittee on CLE, you know, I, I've just had so many, I've done so many things for the New York State Bar Association, but when it came time to the executive committee, it was, well, why don't you apply as a diversity member? Why? You know, maybe there needs to be another diversity member, someone who hasn't done as much, right? right. I should be a member of the executive committee just based on my merits. So yeah. that, so that was kind of, you know, one of the conversations we were having. Well, you know, that's, a, that's very interesting. And, and just talking about the Bar Association, because, you know, I know why those diversity seats were created, because it was the very reason that, that you started to answer the question with, we said, we want to be more diverse. What can we do? to have more diversity. And as you said, you need leadership that's diverse. Mm-hmm. And we, and you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't happening. So those seats were created so mm-hmm. that we could start, at least start and, and move forward. But we had a situation and I'm gonna bring it up because I think it's a perfect example of how sometimes it works. Glenn Lauke, who uh, was uh, president of the New York State Bar Association, the first Asian, Asian American, uh, president. He started on the executive committee on a diversity seat. He served for two years. He was able to run again 
and I'm certain would have would have uh, been selected on the diversity seat, but said, I'm not going to run on the diversity. I'm going to run for a regular, uh, you know, non-diversity seat to open up the position for somebody else because I feel like, you know, I've, this helped me get involved. I'm going to step aside. I'm going to, I'm still going to stay involved, Mm -hmm. um, but provide a, uh, someone else an opportunity to 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 step into that role, mm-hmm. and obviously that's the kind of person that you want to have as a leader of your organization. And eventually, uh, he did become uh, you know president of the New York State Bar. So that's you know hopefully that's that's how it works. Mm-hmm. So um, this has really been a wonderful conversation. I, I'm very appreciative of your service, not only to the New York State Bar Association, uh, but to your lecturing on this very important issue. And we've been discussing some very important topics, uh, Myrna, but we have a somewhat lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. You can share with us something that is helping get you through uh, quarantine and and uh, that our our listeners might be able to enjoy. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll do. Uh, I guess shows. Well, maybe both. Um, I'm really into Disney Plus right now. Mm-hmm. My my son <laughs> got into it when it first came out, so I've been just watching everything on on Disney Plus. I, I've rewatched all of the Avenger movies that used to be, you know, my time with my son. We would go every Friday to the movies, and of course, there's no movies now. So now we're watching rewatching everything on Disney Plus. I watched WandaVision. Um, right now, I'm in. I watch Soul. Um, so now I'm in, I'm going to, today I'm going to watch Raya and the Last Dragon. So, so, so I'm really into Disney plus in terms of music. I have just really gotten into reggaeton. That's another thing I found on Apple music is that you can just go in and they'll give you like suggestions for music essentials. So I, I started, you know, reading, watching the, the reggaeton, you know, like, um, listening to reggaeton and then. And I was like, oh, I like this person. You know, I like Ozuna. I like Natina. <laughs> so, so now I'm like, I'm just listening to reggaeton the whole day while I'm, I'm doing my work. So it's, it's fun. Great. Well, Myrna, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, thank you for your, uh, for your involvement. And thank you for being with us here on Miranda Warnings. Thank you for having me. If you like Miranda Warnings, you have the right to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.